name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is astounding to me that next Friday Lent is over. It ends with the communion of the pre-sanctified on Friday. And we then come to that little, that little interval between the Holy Forty-Day Fast and Holy Week, that interval composed of the great feast of Lazarus, Lazarus Saturday, and then the glorious feast of Palm Sunday, glorious in its victory and glorious in its tragedy. So we have come now to the final of the sixth six weeks of Great Lent. We have been fasting, and we have been irritated by the fast. We have at times been sorely tempted to set it aside. We have forgotten it now and again. We have not been able, in our poverty, to yoke it to that prayer in such a way as Christ describes the really tough demons can be dealt with only through prayer and fasting. And so perhaps at the end of Lent there is a kind of spiritual fatigue. What, after all, have we accomplished? The more accurate question, however, is not what we have done, but what God has managed to do with us during these six weeks. And to perfect that question even more, since God has created us not slave but free, the question ought to be, what have we allowed, what have we enabled Christ to make of us during the six weeks of this intense, focused fasting and praying? Because the truth is that while we think mostly of the Tesarakosti, the 40-day fast, that is simply shorthand. And the actual name is prayer and fasting. Four days of more perfect, more focused prayer and fasting. That being the case, is it any wonder that we have encountered demons during this fast, the likes of which we do not see, for the most part, during the rest of the year? Is it any wonder that things befall us in our personal lives, family lives, professional lives, in our lives in general? Challenges, trials and tribulations like unto no other time, no other season of the year. When you think about that, you realize how could it be any different? There is nothing worse than having an enemy. Oh yes, there is. It's having an enemy who has become alarmed. Because when your enemy is alarmed, he behaves in terrible ways towards you. Now, let us ask ourselves, what could alarm our enemy, the demon, what could help alarm him more than that you and I 
desire to pray and fast for 40 days. Obviously, he is not going to come after us with a noodle or a jackknife. He is going to come against us heavily armed, to shatter our assumptions, to disturb our faith in God and in one another, to muddy the pure springs of our human love and of our capacity to respond to God's love for us. He is going to mix us up, turn us inside out and upside down as much as possible. He needs to disorient us. He needs to make us worry, to become anxious, to stumble, to fight with one another, to lose our sense of solidarity with those with whom we are near and who are dear to us. And above all, he needs to compromise our faith. He needs to corrupt us in any way he can. This final week of the fast that lies ahead of us should not disturb those of us who feel that we have not done particularly well so far. The good thief rebukes all of us who think that it is ever too late. In a very moment, the confession of the good thief on the cross won him a reward that you and I yearn to hear with our own ears. This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. To hear such words from our Savior, what could possibly be more wonderful? And he was not one of the twelve who had trudged along the dusty roads of Palestine for three years. He was not one of the others who had been with Christ for a long time, who had put up with much. In a moment, as the hymns of Holy Week will say, like that, he is saved. That should remind us of Zacchaeus, with whom we began the first of the six pre-Lenten Sundays. He merely glanced up and saw Christ. And Christ said, This day is salvation come unto thee and unto all thy house. So God works not as we work. And though it is true that for most of us we must put in long, long years of struggle, we must not think that perhaps if we have not done particularly well, if the fast this Lent has not had real integrity, that we might as well just give up and lose the last week too. What utter nonsense. What a victory for evil and wickedness that would be. No, we can begin now. We can begin Monday and fast strictly for a week and pray. And wondrous and amazing things can be done by Christ in us. This morning, what gathers us together is the figure of this most alarming woman. She is woman. And women have alarmed men almost from the beginning. Men will never actually understand the depth of women. 
men can stand in awe of women's capacity for spiritual life and for religious life in general, but men will never understand that at all. And this alarming woman tells us her story with a frankness that is frankly shocking. We know everything about her and very little. We know that she describes her rebellion against her parents as a young teenage girl of 12 in very interesting language. She said, when I was 12, I rejected my parents' love and left them. What she does not say is, oh, life was terrible at home. I was bored. Things were awful. My parents didn't understand me. And all of that. She blames no one but herself. She does not come from a bad family, from inept or incompetent parents. She describes them in a single terse phrase of a very few words. I rejected their love. So they were loving parents. And let us see that good parents, parents who give their children the one gift needful, their parental love, that good parents can see their children go astray. And yes, such parents frequently berate themselves and blame themselves and so on and so forth. Well, that is because they forget the power of evil and how it can seize upon lambs that are even in a good flock. Mary goes off at the tender age of 12. Well, yes, it was an era and a culture where girls were married off by the time they were 14, for sure. Mothers at 15, for sure. Typical, characteristic, yes, we understand. But she left them not to be married. She left them at the age of 12 and went to the city of Alexandria. At that period, it would have been the largest city on earth. And it was a byword for licentiousness and sin. She went to Alexandria with the vulnerability of a saucy little girl who thinks she knows everything and in fact knows nothing. But when we are twelve, no one can tell us that, because we know better. It is only when we get older that we realize we don't know it all. And of course, what is expected occurs. And she sins greatly, and with a kind of gusto. And one day, apparently, what, late 20s? Long after she has sunk deep into the mire of a sinful life, she, out of a kind of idle curiosity, takes a ship that is conveying Christian pilgrims from Egypt to the Holy Land for the Feast of the Elevation of the Cross, the 14th of September. And she continues to be sinful, both on board the ship and after she reaches the holy city, 
of Jerusalem. And then when all the Christians are running to that great temple, the Holy Sepulchre, for the Feast of the Cross, at that moment she runs with them, again out of idle curiosity. She has not come to worship the Lord, she has not come to venerate the Holy Cross, she just wants to look and see. She is curious Well, in the prayer of Saint Ephraim, the Syrian, we pray to God to deliver us from, amongst other things, curiosity. Because curiosity just doesn't kill the cat. Curiosity gets us into a great raft load of trouble. We like to say that curiosity is a sign of intelligence. If that's true, I think we need to say it differently. Guarded curiosity, wary curiosity, may be a sign of intelligence. But for most, most of the time, it leads us astray. But here this curious girl, whose curiosity has led her into a hellish life, wants to see what's going on in the Holy Sepulchre. And as she pushes forward through the crowd, she is stopped by an invisible wall. We live in an era of glass ceilings. She runs smack into a glass door. For some reason which she cannot understand and which cannot be explained in terms of normal physics, She cannot enter through the space of the door, though all around her, men and women, young and old, are going in. But something holds her back, and she says she tries and tries, and it it doesn't work. For once, for the first time in her life, Mary of Egypt runs into a no. Who is saying no to her is God. But we must look at that no carefully. Notice that God at no point ever rejects Mary of Egypt, even when she is so sinful. God's love continues to shower down on her, even when she betrays her integrity. And in this instance, his love takes the form of no, of Stop it. It may not feel like love or sound like love, but it is love. Because of her extraordinarily sinful life, she cannot enter into the temple of the living God and venerate the cross on which Christ died to relieve us from our sins. There is a great contradiction and incompatibility between the way she lives and what she would like to see in the Holy Sepulchre. And so God is merciful to her and slams the door in her face. And that is the kindest act of love that anyone 
could do for this poor, disoriented woman. Mary reacts for once appropriately. At long last, after all these years from the age of twelve when she rejects her parents' love, at long last Mary of Egypt does the right thing. She is not indignant. She does not demand her rights. She does not go to the police and saying, they're going in, why can't I? She understands in a blinding flash why it is she can't go in. She doesn't understand the mechanics of the force that is pushing her out, but she understands its logic, its rationale. And as she turns, there is on the wall a great icon of the Virgin Mary, as we see here, holding the child Jesus. The icon, as we say, of the Incarnation. And her eyes meet the eyes of the Virgin Mary, the all-pure one, and suddenly Mary feels a shame from her scalp to her toenails. She blushes in every part of herself with shame. She understands in just a moment of insight what it is that she has made of her life, what a hideous mess she has made of everything. The full weight of her responsibility for leading so many men, many of them young, into sin, hits her all of a sudden, falls on her like a ton of bricks. She is overwhelmed. She begins to pray that the Virgin Mary will join her interceding with God for forgiveness. And she begins to realize that she must change her mind, that is to say, repent of not this little sin, or that little sin, or that big sin, but of her whole life. Everything is wrong. She's in the wrong place. She took the wrong road. Everything has to change radically. And here we come across what makes Mary of Egypt such a distinctive saint amongst all the tens of thousands of saints that there are. It is the radicalness. Her willing, voluntary radicalness as she understands that everything must go. She must say goodbye to this life that she has been drinking in like wine and adopt an entirely new basis and foundation for her day and for her night. An entirely new way of interacting with other human beings. This is not done so easily. She goes to confession and she receives Holy Communion. And then she crosses the Jordan River and she goes out into the desert and there she will be for 40 years.
We know this story so well, we read it together every year, how when she is an old woman in the desert, naked, she is found by the monk, the priest, Zasimus, and how he brings her communion, and how he buries her body. And we know the miracles that occur as a result of the intercessions of Mary of Egypt. She is so close to us. No detail of her life escapes us. We are all tempted, perhaps not as spectacularly as Mary of Egypt, but we are all tempted by the same passions that tempted her. And we have all made our little compromises in our deep minds and in our deep hearts and in our deep imaginations with these seductive passions. She is not some kind of freak that we cannot understand. In the starkness of her impurity, we see a sister. But what is truly wondrous is that God saw one of his own children. And while Mary gave up on herself in many ways, God never, not for one moment ever, gave up on Mary. We can say that it is probably true that for a certain time Mary did not believe in God. Fortunately for Mary, God always believed in her. And so in the end, everything turned out miraculously, in wondrous and amazing ways. And we are dealing not with Mary the harlot, but with Saint Mary of Egypt, to whom the Church dedicates the final Sunday of the Great Fast. Knowing that we leave the hardest things for the end, when we have built up some inner spiritual strength. And those passions which conflicted within Mary's heart conflict in ours. You and I will not abandon this world and wander off into a deep desert to live off roots and the few drops of water that come during the night for the rest of our lives. That is not plausible. But we need to know about Mary's repentance and about how she enacted it, how she made it real in her life, in order to spur ourselves on to act as a goad when our own spirit flags and when our own motivation to repent for our sin runs thin. Mary of Egypt is one of the Church's great gifts to all of us poor sinners. And she is a kind of beautiful model for us in what she made of her life when she accepted that Christ was truly her Savior. May God grant that by her intercessions what little remains of this 
holy 40 days, will be for us truly fruitful. And that we will cherish one another in such ways that the tone of voice in which we address one another will be altered. That the way in which we handle problems and crises that inevitably will come up, thrown in our way by circumstances, life itself, and failing them, the devil, that we will handle them in modest, humble, quiet ways, filled with love for Christ. And may we, in a godly way, never give up on ourselves or on other people. And if we are ever tempted to do so, may we remember Mary of Egypt. Amen.